This morning, uh, we'll be reading 1 Samuel 16, 6 through 13. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And then he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? He said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. You may now be seated. Whoops. Well, thank you, Brett. Long time no see, bro. Um... Well, hi, I'm Trey. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, super excited to be up here this morning. One thing, if you've been here the last few weeks, you know that Frank's been gone, but he's back in the house. Yeah, whoop, whoop, snaps. Uh, he was uh, leading his uh, family camp that he does every year, and he did it longer this year, and he loved it, but he, he told me that he really missed you guys, so it's exciting for him to be here. So if you see him or you're around him, just go up and give him a chest bump, say what's up. He'll feel loved by that. I'm sure. He won't feel loved if you do that, but <laughs> I wanted to say it anyway. Um, well, since he's back, we're also jumping in. We finished our Summer King study for our Wednesday nights, and we're jumping back into our normal Wednesday nights uh, here at Arcadia. And so uh, from uh, 7 to 7.45, Frank's going to be leading us again. And we're actually going to jump back into uh, 1 Corinthians. We're going to start in 1 Corinthians 13. Many of you think you know this because you've been to a wedding. You've heard, love is patient, love is... You don't, you don't actually know. So you have to come and hear Frank talk about it so that you really, you know, you've probably actually gotten to study it a lot, but it's more than just what we've heard in weddings too. So um, I think sometimes passages of the Bible, just because they're iterated a lot, we think it's lost power, but it is not. It has not. God's word is living and active and never comes back void. Um, well, we've been in this We Want a King series, and it's not a new idea that people have always thought if we have the right leader, if we've got the right person in office, then we will find salvation for our problems. <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, well, we think often if we get the right person in there, people, this is, never, this is nothing new, our guy or woman, salvation for financial hardship will be there. Well, the economy will be fixed, we'll have the right rules, we'll have the right execution of it, and we won't have to worry about it. We also think, if we get the right person in there, that all of our um, social hardship will find salvation. We get the right person, and we, all these issues that we have between people, as if all of the issues that people have always had between themselves will be fixed if we get the right leader. We also believe, if we aren't aware of it, that when we've try to get the right person in office, he will save, or he or she will save us from our enemies. 
Nothing is new. Israel displayed this very same behavior. Uh, God showed them, though, through the kings that they asked for, that no human can, can bring the salvation that they longed for. No human could bring, no normal human could bring this. Uh, and it's important to know we're in 1 Samuel 16, so if you want to open up in your Bible, go ahead and jump there now. But last week, Tyler Thompson, Pastor Tyler Thompson brought us through fifth, chapter 15. And uh, 16 and 15 are really similar, but it's important we know the characters that are at play here. The two people we've really been diving into is Samuel. Samuel was the prophet of the Lord. He was also the judge over all of Israel. And then Israel was like, we don't want you anymore. We want a king. So then God says, go and anoint Saul. So Samuel anoints Saul, and then Saul screws up. And we learned that last week, and we went through some hard things last week. One of the ways that Saul screwed up is that And this time, he's mustering up Israel's armies to fight their enemies. And Samuel gives him instruction, wait for me. I'm going to come, and on the seventh day, I'm going to do this sacrifice, and the Lord's favor will be on us. So just wait for me. And he doesn't wait. The army is, like, leaving. And people are like, where is this guy? It's not coming. The Lord's not with us, so I'm out of here. And so then, to keep up appearances, like we all love to do, he goes out and does the, as unauthorized personnel, he's not authorized to do this, he goes and does the sacrifice himself. And so then God was like, what in the world are you doing? So Samuel comes up, and he's like, what have you done? And then, so he says, you've, you forfeit your kingship. We're going to give it to somebody better than you. We're going to give it to somebody who's after God's own heart. And obviously, this behavior didn't go as planned for Saul. Um, and his fear of people outweighed his fear of God. He disobeyed the word and authority of the Lord. And so God's promise is to end this kingdom and look to what we're going to find is David. In 1 Samuel 13, 14, it says, But now your kingdom, he's talking to Saul, shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Pastor Tyler talked about this last week. Saul's preferences and God's preferences did not line up. And we hate it when God inflicts his preferences on us. But we go around inflicting our preference on everything and never think twice about it. But when God does it to us, it's like, what if? Don't you get it? This isn't what we want. So we learned that last week. We're going to learn this this week. It's the same message. It's just not as violent. Last week was pretty violent. We went through some hard stuff. Um, And... Basically, the message is that God unapologetically inflicts his preferences, even when people drastically disagree with it. And my hope is that we become a community that loves it when God does that, because it always means what's best for us. It always means what's best for us. Uh, So go ahead and jump open. I'm going to pray real quick, and as we jump into uh, 1 Samuel 16... um, we're going to talk about David. Get excited. We finished with the Saul part, and we're going to jump into David. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, um, what a blessing and honor it is for me to be here. Weak and needy, I come to this task to um, be a part of you shaping our community through the preaching of your word. I pray that it would be your spirit that empowers this. I pray you would get me out of the way. I pray that you would illumine our minds and that you would inflame our hearts. 
Let us be changed. Let us be different. Let us be affected by your word. It is living and active. Lord, I pray your spirit would do what he does. And I pray um, for all of our own things we're bringing in from the week and things we're looking at that's coming up next week. Lord, I pray in this moment we might be able to be rid of those distractions and focus on uh, what you might have for us. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All righty. 1 Samuel 16. Before we jump in, I just want to take a moment. But when we read stuff in Scripture, I just want... We didn't have these numbers when, when it was first written. We have the numbers because in English, that's how we break stuff up. But before that, like the old Hebrew readers of this, this the Old Testament would know it by different um, rhetorical structures and stuff. If you've ever gotten to see, they even use them today in the synagogues for, for the, the Jewish synagogues. They have like these really, really neat, um, perfectly put together scrolls. And they're in these pages and they're in blocks. But to, so that they can navigate through, and it's not just like, like information that's a perfect square, they actually will put spaces in and specific things so that it looks like a specific thing. And that's one of the ways that they would see the structure in the writing, not numbers, chapters, and verses. So like if you go and look in Exodus where there's this, the parting of the Red Sea, you'll see that this, the Hebrew that's written actually has specific spaces in the middle so it looks like the, even the text is being parted. It's super interesting. These are the ways that they, they used different um, structural navigation tools. One of the other ways that they did is called an inclusio. An inclusio means that there's a statement in the front and a statement in the back that would clue in the audience or the readers that this was one section. So our ESV translators go through and make sections for us with chapters and verses and stuff like that. But um, they would have read it a little bit differently. And so I think I wanted to give us a little bit of clue in what, what, are we jump, what are we jumping into? Well, chapter 16 and 17 were meant to be one section. It was an inclusio. At the very chapter uh, 16, chapter, verse 1, it talks. It refers to the son of Jesse, and then in seventeen, in chapter seventeen, verse. Um, let's see that last verse in seventeen, fifty-eight. It says, "David answers, I am the son of your servant Jesse the Bethlehemite." And so there's this inclusio. It's capsulated. It's bookended. So we would see this as one section. So we can't divorce chapter sixteen and seventeen. That's why I'm saying all that. We can't. It's important we recognize the introduction of David is not just what we're going to read. This humble guy who's a young dude, overlooked, but he's also this crazy warrior who kills bears and lions by grabbing them by the beard and punching them. This dude is hardcore. He is not just this like lowly servant who doesn't, who we don't even see speak in chapter 16. But in 17, we also see that this dude kills a giant that defied the Lord's armies. So as we read 16, and for the sake of just walking through as a church, like walking through, we, we broke it up. But recognize that it's one section, so this week and next week are going to be one deal um, as the introduction of the Lord's anointed, who is David. All right, so chapter 16, verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? And if you, you might remember, so it's now that Saul's screwed up, God has said, hey, you're not going to be the king anymore, and Samuel is grieved by it. If you look back one verse before that, in chapter 35, it says, And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul. So Samuel is actually sad and broken heart. He was relieved of his duties as the judge and then brought this king up. I would have been like, I told you so, but he was grieved. 
he was like moved and broken by this. And God's like, okay, so you're, I get it. You're sad. You're grieving over him. Why are you, how long are you going to do this? Just fill your horn with oil. Let's look to the future and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. You might think, okay, God just brings up Jesse like Samuel's supposed to know who he is. He may have known who he was. Jesse is the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. One book before 1 Samuel, if you go to the left, one book, it's Ruth. If you have not read it, I implore you to read it. It is beautiful. It is an amazing story of redemption. It is a story of loyalty, God's blessing through really, really hard things. And then we also get to see what's so significant about Ruth and Boaz and then into Jesse and David and all the way down that leads to the line of Christ. It was through their lineage that the salvation of the world would be had. So it's a, it's a part of it. So anyway, he may have known who Jesse was because of the whole Ruth and Boaz thing. Anyway, um, so you'll notice that there was an interesting verbiage that God said, for I have provided for myself, he says, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. This would suggest that God was active in bringing David up for his purposes, which we know God is sovereign, so he, he did do that. But we also know this is God's choice as opposed to the people's choice. God's choice as opposed to the people's choice. Um, 1 Samuel 8.22 says that, um, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice. Anytime God says obey any voice other than his, he's giving people over to their sin. Come on. God only says obey his voice. But he says obey their voice and um, make them a king. So give them their choice. God did have Samuel anoint Saul, but it seems that God chose Saul as the people's choice. And why would he choose Saul? Well, in 1 Samuel 9, 2, it gives us a little, why would, why would the people think Saul is the guy? Why would he be the one who would bring salvation for Israel? And, Kish, and he had a son, this is um, 1 Samuel 9, 2, whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. He's tall, so he's a really good fighter. He'll fight our battles for us, naturally. He looks really good for the part. This makes sense. The people described the king that they wanted, the one who would go and fight their battles. Ironically, the king that they asked for would end up having a young boy go and fight his battles with Goliath. So he'll go and fight. He's handsome. He's tall. He's wealthy. He's influential. This is the guy. So God gives it to him. As we find is often the case, God prefers different things than what people prefer. Let's read on in verse 2. Verse 2, it says, uh, And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. How can I go and anoint this new king? If Saul hears, he's going he's gonna to end me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded. Wise choice, Samuel. Good job. And came to Bethlehem. The leaders of, or the elders of the city came to meet him trembling. Odd. They came trembling and said, do you come peaceably? This guy's the prophet of the Lord. 
He was the judge. Everybody knows who this guy is. Why would they, wouldn't they be like, hey, thanks for coming to our town, our little town of Bethlehem. It's great to see you. No, they're trembling because anytime God is sending his prophet, something's up. Who's, who's in trouble? What did they do? Tell us, we'll, we'll figure this out. Just don't bring any, any of God's wrath down upon us. They knew something was up. Samuel knew it was going to be a big deal. Like, like, president will not just go to some small town and no one will hear about it. That everyone's going to hear about this. They're going to hear that I'm going to this place, and they're going to be like, what is happening? Saul's going to know I'm anointing a king, just like I anointed him, and he's going to kill me for it. But God is so shrewd and so wise, and he says, go do what you do. Make a sacrifice. No one will suspect a dang thing. And invite them to the sacrifice, which means that they'll get to have some of the food with them, and they'll get to see, and it's not like he just said he's going to do something. He didn't. He actually did do it. Um, so no one suspects anything. This is all covert, under wraps. Verse 5, uh, and he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Now, he never mentions he's anointing a king. So later when we read that, that David's going back and forth into the battle to bring food to his brothers, his brothers may not have known that he's been anointed king. They knew something happened here, but they don't, they don't know that. His dad may not have known. So when they give lip to, to David and start calling bad, they don't know they're talking to their king. So just to give a little bit of um, context here. So let's read on verse 6. And when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. Did you not learn with Saul? Saul was tall. He wasn't the guy. So don't look on that. Don't look on those things. Um, and he goes on and he says, for, the Lord, uh, for I have rejected him, uh, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab, okay, the second son. This guy's got to be the guy and made him pass before Samuel. We've got this Hebrew runway show happening. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. Notice there's an intentionality to say seven sons. We don't know if it's seven sons after that or if he had seven sons total. But they were very clear. Seven sons. We'll come back to that. Seven sons of, um, of his sons passed before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest. <laughs> but behold, he's, he's keeping the sheep. He's, not, he's the sheep guy. Don't. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him. For we will not sit down till he comes here. Kind of neat. Wasn't even thought of. Samuel's like, hold up. Go get him. And then he, it's, it's like he's the honored guest. There's a lot of anticipation here. I don't know if you remember when Saul was, was introduced. It was like, hey, here's a guy. He's looking for donkeys. David's introduced. And it's like, no, not this one. Not this one. There's this anticipation as we're reading through. And it's on purpose. It's on purpose. This is a big deal what's coming. Uh, 
So send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he said, uh, and he sent and brought him in. Now he was a ruddy, and um, now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. Ruddy is an interesting word. I don't know if I've ever, I've never been described as, I'm sure you've never been described as, the reason that you've never been described as this is because it means red. It doesn't mean rugged. I have been described as rugged, okay? <laughs> You're not supposed to laugh at that. It was, but he is described as ruddy. This is the same Hebrew word that describes Esau's red hair. So that he's a ginger. So if you have red hair, just know the Lord uses you. But so, so he has red hair or he's got a red complexion. So he's ruddy. He's reddish, which is a beautiful thing. And he has beautiful eyes. Take note. Scripture is always poetic. Well, Old Testament was always poetic. And the eyes were viewed as something that showed to your heart, your soul. See, beautiful eyes specifically. Not just handsome. He is handsome. But he's got beautiful eyes, beautiful red hair. This guy was a gorgeous young boy. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now notice, in 15, we see the Spirit of the Lord leaving Saul. And in 16, we see the Lord coming on David. So we see this big shift. Um, but we've also noticed that there's a lot happening here. David, this young boy who's overlooked, who just cannot be the guy, is the guy. And not only is uh, this like all covert and there's just so much happening, but there's this seven sons. Why was there seven sons? Hebrew would have been written in poetry, like we've said, and one of the things we want to recognize is seven meant complete. Jesse, his dad, looked at the, took inventory of his sons and said, this is the complete bit of my sons that you might pick from. He, this guy really overlooked. Dave. That would have hurt my feelings. I wasn't invited to the party to eat the food. I was overlooked. Everybody else is going to the Collins, and I'm over here just watching sheep. I don't know if you know Collins. It's a really nice place. I wanted to date there once. It was wonderful. You guys haven't been in the Collins? Oh, it's fantastic. Maybe I should have said the Henry. We all know that. Okay. Anyway. Well, they all go out to eat, and he's feeling left out, and he comes, and, well, it turns out he's the guy. It also, something interesting happens. So Samuel would have seen these guys. He's like, ah, it's got to be this guy. Ah, it's got to be that guy. And all these guys pass by, and all the people he's wanted to talk to have kind of moved on. But the Spirit wanted him to talk to somebody else. Have you guys ever felt that? Spirit's prompting you to go talk to somebody, and you're really like, I just don't want to. <laughs> I, I, I would prefer to distance myself from that person and not talk to that person. And Spirit's like, go speak to that person. Maybe that, I feel like this is what's happening right here, is he's saying, hey, go and speak to that person. And so God's preference and Samuel's preference did not align. They were not the same. And also, you might be wondering, what's going on with this oil thing? Normally, I put shampoo in my hair, otherwise it gets greasy. If I put oil in, that defeats the purpose, right? Like, what's happening here? This was a symbol of the Spirit being upon him. So when this happens, he's, the Spirit is now, like, being welcomed in a nice ceremonial way, and the Spirit's on him from this point forward. So let's jump back to verse 7, because I feel like this is the 
fulcrum of this passage. It says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God focuses on different things than people normally focus on. Thank God for that. God prioritizes differently than the way man prioritizes. Even though we think that our priorities are right. God prioritizes differently. Last week, Tyler quoted Isaiah uh, 55 about how God's ways and his thoughts are higher than our ways and our thoughts. So naturally, he's going to think differently. And praise God for that. Bill T. Arnold, who's a, um, a scholar, he said, We often fail to see the God potential in others or in ourselves because we are easily impressed by the wrong indicators. We're easily impressed by the wrong things. So we naturally think, God couldn't use this person. God couldn't use me. I don't have all the things. And everyone thinks they're really good at judging character. Right? We meet people. I know them. I can size them up. We all think we're pretty good at it. I've seen a thing or two. I know know things. All I'm saying is Samuel was actually a judge. He was a judge of a nation. This dude knew how to see right through all of all of the garbage. He could sift through it, and he knew it was what was right and what was wrong. And this guy is thinking, I'm a really good judge of character, and yet God uses him to represent all of humanity. You think this guy would know, and he doesn't. People look to the wrong things, and instead of looking to God's priorities, we inflict our preferences on what we would rather have. And that's what Samuel did. This guy has to be the guy. It wasn't Saul. Yeah, he, he had the look and stuff, but it just wasn't, he just wasn't, this is the guy. He's big and he's handsome and ironically, he's going to be like shaking in his high tops when uh, Goliath is a, across the way, you know. But David was the right guy. Why was David the right guy? Well, I think we identify everything with wrong indicators. I think we identify a lot of things with the wrong indicators. I think we identify people with the wrong indicators. I think we identify situations with the wrong indicators. Success, we will quantify what success is with the wrong things. We will quantify what faithfulness is with the wrong things. We'll quantify wealth. It has to be currency. More money, that's wealth. I don't know. We'll quantify what is good. We'll judge what is good on the wrong indicators. We do this often. Try and notice what happens to the way, um, in the way that you type people, next time you're around and you just you, this thought just comes up in your mind when you're walking through Home Depot or something, and you start thinking how you type people based on how they're dressed or their fitness or lack of fitness, their age. You might look at people and identify them wrongly by their age. This person couldn't spit wisdom because they're young. This person only knows old people wisdom because they're old, <laughs> right? Like, we will look at people and we will identify them with the wrong indicators. You have no idea. You can't see their heart. Tattoos. I'm not saying I don't love it, but I've seen some tattoos that are just totally, they're not connected. They're just randomized. Have you guys ever played with those doodle bears? You guys remember those? I feel like some people get tattoos and they look like doodle bears. I know some people played with doodle bears. Come on. I had an older sister. <laughs> and you just draw on them all these random things. And I'm like, I love it. I think it's cool. But sometimes we see that and we, put, we type people based on the wrong indicators. 
This person thinks their skin is a canvas. Cool. Like, I love it. Like, let's, let's try and see what's going on in their heart. Why would they think that these tattoos are neat? Let's have a little bit of inquiry here instead of just typing them on first glance. Or how about hair? I mean, or anything. We will give or withhold respect based on the wrong indicators. The seasoned members of our church may be inclined to type people because they're younger or based on their age. The members of our church in the marketplace may be um, typing people based on their salary or their position at work. Are they in management? Are they, what are they doing? Are they doing it well? Or their look? Are they dressing the part? The members of our church who are in school may type people based on their potential or their performance, whether in studies, sports, social captivation, if you're like really funny and handsome and good looking and all those things. All of us identify people based on what they can give to us rather than what we could give to them, right? What could they give to us? Not always tangibly, but maybe it's laughter, maybe it's social status, maybe it's like professional like improvement. Somehow they help you in your job or something, or maybe, maybe it's because other people like them, so you like them. But we will identify people, and we will give respect or withhold respect based on what they can give or do for us all the time. What are the most attractive qualities to you? What are the things that captivate you where you're like, man, I like this person? What if our church, what if our church was a place that found value in people not based on the wrong indicators but on the fact that they're image bearers of God. And since we cannot see the heart, we can get to know people with truly open and non-critical hearts, not showing favoritism, as the Lord doesn't show favoritism. What if we were a place that looked, I can't see the heart, but I'd like to know it before before I, to try and understand you instead of making up an idea about you because I've seen you or I know your past or whatever. What if we prioritized people based on what we could give to them instead of what they could give to us? What if we were a launching point of sending our people out back into their lives, their mission fields, wherever you go, wherever you live, wherever you work, wherever you play, wherever you eat, where we could care for people like this everywhere we go? we would infect our city. If we used our natural human indicators of finding value in people, we would have missed Christ. Isaiah 52, 2-3 says, For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of the dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. By the grace of God, some of us are concerned with the things God's concerned with, and we see the beauty in the Lord's anointed, and for us, we have a privilege to be called the children of God. Why does it stop there, though? Sometimes we will see the beauty in the Lord, and yet we will not see the beauty in our neighbor based on their heart, on what God's doing in them. I'd love to challenge us in this. I'd love to be a community that does that well. Um, as followers of Christ, we should often be assessing the indicators we're using. 
to identify people? What gets your respect? What gets your attention? Let's move on. Uh, Verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from from God is tormenting uh, you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. Here we see music therapy started in Scripture. That's kind of cool. So we see that here first, which is neat. Also, we might see... This is one of those passages that kind of like we went through last week that's kind of like God sent a harmful spirit to torment someone. That might be difficult to kind of chew on. And inevitably, if you continue to read scripture, which I, you should, you will find things that are hard to, de- to deal with. And naturally, there's going to be all these different circumstances that are playing into that. A lot of us come in with our cultural understanding, our biases, And so we have to fight against what are we looking at this with human bias and what are we looking at this with, like, scripture-informed bias. Um, And we want to try and understand these things. It might be difficult to read this, but um, it's helpful to start start from this place, knowing that God is the true judge of the universe. And whether it's something that we don't understand, whether it's, like, God sentencing crime, like he puts a sentence on crime or something like this, like the sin that Saul did or whatever it is, Um, God being that God of the universe, he's the only being who's able to pronounce a truly just punishment. The only one. We have judges in our day, and they might make a sentence. And it might be as just as it can be, but God is the only one who can make a just punishment truly just and perfect. And so in our created being minds, and God being the creator, we have to recognize we will not know right and wrong better than the God of the universe. So when we read things that are difficult for us to get into, we have to recognize, we got a question, am I I credible on knowing right and wrong more than God in this? Second thing that we kind of want to sit on is, am I understanding this situation? God tells us that he is just, and he is good, and he is loving, and he is compassionate, and the Lord never lies, so we can trust him no matter what situation arises. That is who God is. Let's start there. And I would even say in this situation here, I think something's happening for another purpose than just punishment. And if you get a chance to read and study through Job, you know that sometimes there's there's no reason for specific, no reason that you can put to that we could understand based on suffering. So much more complex. The Lord is way higher than our ways. There are so many things we can't understand, but we know that God is good. We know that he is true. We know that he is just. And so that's the place we camp. And then as we wrestle with things, as we should wrestle, we wrestle humbly. So the Lord does send the spirit. Um, let's read on. In verse 17, what happens? So Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well. Okay, do the thing you said that you want me to do. Okay, do it. Bring him to me. Verse 18, one of the young men answered, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. I'm like, man, I'd like to be introduced like that. That is the best best introduction ever. Can you imagine that somebody's like this, like you're the best man at a wedding, and you're like, this is the guy, and you said these things about him. He's just really great presence. The Lord is with him. He's mighty, man of valor, man of war. I saw him kill a bear. Like, that's, sorry, if PETA people are in here. That probably wasn't funny. But um, best introduction ever. 
And he says, basically, this is the man after God's own heart here. So what does that look like to be a man after God's own heart? We all want that, right? Those of us in Christ, we're like, I want to be that. I want to be a man. I want to be a woman after God's own heart. What does that look like? Why is, why is David more significant? It says he was handsome. Do you have, so clearly, it's not about being handsome or not being handsome or, or being tall or not being tall. It's about the heart. Just because somebody's short doesn't mean they have a wonderful heart. Just because somebody's... T- anyway, okay. We, that horse is dead. So, I did it again. <laughs> the animals, I'm sorry. Um, okay, bring it back. Okay, so Psalm 27.4. This is David's psalm, and he writes these things. So what, what is it about David's heart that we're just like, man, that is so attractive to the Lord. Psalm 27.4, it says, One thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I can be in his presence, to gaze upon the beauty, this guy sees the beauty, the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. He says, God, I want you. That is what makes a man after God's own heart. God, I want you. Last, uh, two weeks ago, Pastor Tyler James talked about how Saul saw God as useful, not necessarily beautiful. David sees the beauty in God and says, I want you. He goes on, and, and, he, and I think God provided for himself someone like David on purpose in a few ways, but we get to learn a little bit more. The same chapter in, in verse, chapter, uh, verse 7 will we'll go on. It says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. Why? Why would I ask that you wouldn't cast me off? Why? For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Dad didn't invite me into the thing because he he never really saw that God had made me something. Or we're about to read on about how mom and dad sends him away to go play for the king, and he doesn't, as a boy doesn't get to be raised in his own home with his family. My parents have forsaken me. I think this happened on purpose, though. Seems really hard. Might be like, Trey, why the heck would that be on purpose? God provided for himself a man that had nowhere to find comfort other than in God alone. David says, I am poor and needy in, in uh, Psalm 7, 70, chapter 5. I'm poor and needy. He's, this is the same guy who, who kills bears and kills lions by punching them. The same guy who killed uh, Goliath and defied the armies of the Philistines. This is one of the most valiant warriors of history. And he says, I'm poor and needy. Why? Because he knows he needs the Lord. What made David extravagant was that he depended on the Lord. You want a heart after God's own heart? Depend on the Lord. What do you want most? David wanted to be in the presence of God most. Okay, verse 19 goes on and it says, Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey uh, laden with bread and a skin of wine and young goat and uh, sent them to David, uh, sent them by David his son to Saul. So we see, okay, it's customary to give, like, a gift to the king. This is not necessarily a customary gift. It's not, like, super extravagant, but it's not, like, super poor. So I'd imagine that this just kind of shows that the family's just kind of, like, blue-collar. Like, here's what we have. We've got some bread, and we've got, like, one thing of wine and, like, 
a donkey, you know, and a goat. So, like, it's not too much to be read in, but he, he gives a gift, um, and I think it just kind of shows the background that David came from. But verse 21, it goes on, and David came to Saul and entered his, servant, his service, and Saul loved him greatly. And he became his armor bearer. An armor bearer is someone who would carry the shield in front of, da- of uh, the king, and um, it carries some weapons and would have his back in war. And it was for, like, distinguished warriors would have this, like if they were a really good warrior, or if they were a king, they would have an armor bearer. So David was his armor bearer. So he goes out into battle as a young, young man with David. And verse 22, And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Was it the music or was it the one playing it that refreshed Saul? The Lord was with him. The Lord was on him. David, God's anointed, is a life giver because of the spirit on him. Even to Saul. Even to Saul. We see a shift, like we said before, the spirit's gone from Saul into David. And I think this harmful spirit was allowed to come on Saul to show the Lord's glory and power that even those who have sinned against the Lord might see that God is still a life giver through David. And more importantly, we'll see that David will be just a a, uh, sign pointing to the ultimate life giver. I think that's why this harmful spirit was there. There was something else going on. Similar to that to that uh, uh, parable when Jesus was asked, hey, did this guy sin or his parents sin? And that's why he's blind. And Jesus is like, neither. Like, this guy was blind so that I could heal him right now and you might see the power of the Lord. There are more things, more reasons, more complexities that we don't get when things happen that are tough. And also, I'm like, man, there's a lot of tension here. David was anointed king. Saul's still the king. Why doesn't God just, like, make it happen now? Um, has to be uncomfortable David. He, for, for David. He's away from his family. He's also in the presence of the guy who could, if he learns that he was anointed king, try and kill him, which he's going to try to for the rest of 1 Samuel. We see a lot of tension here because of that. God could have chosen to give David the throne right away, but God chooses to have the anointed king and the present king exist with one another, and God uses this tension for his purposes. David gets comfortable being uncomfortable. David trusts God when things don't make sense. That's a really hard thing to do. As we will read in later weeks, David is given so many chances to kill Saul, to take for himself the kingdom, to, to uh, get rid of the tension, um, but instead he waits on the Lord. You who feel anointed for something, are you waiting on the Lord? You want it right now. Because you've been anointed for this thing. You know that it's yours. Are you waiting on the Lord? Singles, waiting for marriage. Are you waiting on the Lord? College students, waiting to be done with studies. I remember senioritis. Are you waiting on the Lord? Workers, are you waiting on the Lord? Um, Do we long for our retirement more than the resurrection? Are we waiting to be done from work more than we're excited about bringing forth God's kingdom as it is in heaven? You might say, but this season's really uncomfortable. You don't get it, Trey. You don't get it. We hate tension, right? We hate it. Our lives are spent trying to eliminate tension. 
We do this with everything. That's what drives like innovation is a need to get rid of tension. It's not made quick enough. It's not fast enough. Get teleportation because I hate our traffic. Whatever. Actually, our traffic's not too bad. But LA, I hate it. Um, but God has no problem in tension. God has no, in fact, he uses it for his purposes. The things that make us uncomfortable do not make God uncomfortable. God is not made uncomfortable by our awkward feelings of trying to share the gospel with people. God's not made uncomfortable when we have to budget more because we're not making our more comfortable salary. God's not made uncomfortable with our health problems. He sits with us, and he's with us every bit of it, but he's not surprised by it. He's not worried by it. God is not made uncomfortable in the heat of our Phoenix summers that he commands. He is not made uncomfortable by that. God is not made uncomfortable by our financial, our professional, our physical, our relational, or our social worries. But he sits with us in them, waiting for us to find our comfort, not in the absence of discomfort, but in him, the God of all comfort. He's waiting for us to find that. God is a God who will give a disease of the body to heal a disease of the heart. He will give a disease of the finances to heal a disease of the heart. He will disrupt your comfort for your good. Praise God for that. And many of the commands that he gives us are really, really uncomfortable. Make disciples. Lay down your life. Forgive. Come on, that's really uncomfortable. Love your enemy. Turn the cheek. Give generously. Wash people's feet. Carry your cross. None of that seems comfortable to me. Many times discomfort is more complex than being explained with a single purpose, but it is never for nothing. It is never for nothing. First, uh, James 1 talks about how we should count it as joy when we face these trials because it produces something in us that's more valuable than comfort, steadfastness. Or 2 Corinthians 4.17, which to the church at the time was being like murdered and burned at the stake and like ripped apart by lions. And he says, this light and momentary affliction, light and momentary, is what he said to them. I've not been ripped apart by lions and stuff, but I feel like it's not light and momentary for me. But Paul says, this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Get this, beyond all comparison. You can't even compare it to anything. Suffering may have more complex reasons than we can understand, but it is never for nothing. God is a God who calls us to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Get comfortable being uncomfortable. Can we identify our discomfort with the right indicators? Um, as Jesus always does, he takes his own medicine. Jesus got uncomfortable, and he stayed comfortable while he was being uncomfortable. Jesus endured leaving the comfort of heaven and endured the discomfort of human life, ridicule, false accusations, torture, suffering, being murdered, separation from God, all for you. 1 John 2.6 says, for those who claim to be in him must walk as Jesus did. Jesus got uncomfortable. You want to walk with God, get comfortable being uncomfortable. Our comfort is a broken thermometer for what is right and wrong. Cannot use comfort to see what is right and wrong. This feels right to me, and I'm comfortable doing it, so that must be right. This doesn't feel comfortable for me, so it must be wrong. That's a broken thermometer. Can't use that. We as Christians don't decide whether we do things or don't do things based on our comfort. We pursue faithfulness. B, 
being ethically faithful in the marketplace will get uncomfortable. Being faithfully pure will get uncomfortable. Being faithful fathers and husbands will get uncomfortable. Being faithful mothers and wives will be uncomfortable and exhausting and uncomfortable. Especially if you're married to me. Love you, man. Being faithful ambassadors of Christ will be uncomfortable. Let us be a community that decides whether we do things or don't do things based on pursuing faithfulness, not comfort. Let us depend on the Lord to give us the strength in Christ. David is not just a Bible character. He is a picture of the one to come who is greater than he. David is a glimpse to the world of Christ, our king, the king of all kings, the one who calls us friends. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, I thank you so much for 1 Samuel 16. There's so many wonderful things in it. And um, I am encouraged greatly that you would call up from someone who was marginalized, someone who was not important, someone who was insignificant, and use them to do great things because they depended on you. Lord, I pray you would make us a community that is that. I pray you'd make us a community that sees people um, not for their appearances or broken indicators, but we would look to their heart and we try to see them with your eyes. Um, and Lord, I just pray your blessing on us as we pursue that into this week. In Jesus' name, amen.